Good to worship the Lord together, and uh, some of what we will see in today's scripture really reinforces the importance of worship. But I'm going to start my message with just one word. Now, you know me by now, in a lot of my messages, I usually put out a word there and uh, make that a key kind of idea. Well, are you ready for this one word as we start Revelation chapter 4? Here it is. Perspicuity. Perspicuity. <laughs> now, why do I introduce chapter 4 of the book of Revelation with this one word? Because it is so important to have in mind what this book is all about. It can be an intimidating book, but it's so important to have in mind what this book is all about. The name of the book makes it clear. It's the first word in the book, apocalypse. It's Greek, and you know what that means? To reveal, to divulge, to uncover. And so that gives us a pretty good idea of what, what God wants to do through this book. And so when we come to it, we can say, whew, this is a tough one. And the reformers, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Bucer and the others used a word, they didn't use it in, in the English language, but they had the idea, and it's a doctrine of the church, and especially in relationship to Protestant theology, perspicuity. They used that word, that, that doctrine. And, and, and what it means is it's the reality that things that are most important to understand in the scriptures are clear. Perspicuity. Now, I hope you don't forget that. We all know that as we go through the scriptures, it may be difficult to understand everything that we read in the Bible. We all know that. But what's most important to understand is clear. For instance, you don't need a degree in theology to understand that Jesus, when, that Jesus came, in fact, he said it, to seek and to save those who are lost. So you, you don't need a, a theology degree to understand that. And for anyone who knows they're lost, that understanding is clear enough to make all the difference, clear enough for them to say, Jesus, find me. And when people ask that, pray that, things change. And so here we are in the fourth chapter of a notoriously enigmatic book that has puzzled many over the centuries. And yet the message of this book is so very clear. God is sovereign. And the salvation that he offers is sure for all who place their trust in him. Now, I'm not going to say that we won't come up against things that are difficult to understand even today. But I will insist that the essential of what we need to know is clear. That's perspicuity. All we really need to know is what Jesus asked us to have when he asked us, especially in these first chapters of Revelations, to have this one thing, it's not perspicuity, but it's ears to hear. And he says that a number of times. We're going to say more about that in a moment. And speaking of God's sovereignty, we embark on a vision given to John, the apostle, in this chapter where the principal actor of history, past, present, and future, is confidently seated on his throne before 
the complete and spectacular fulfillment of his perfect plan for time, for the ages. And so let's read chapter 4 together of Revelation. Chapter 4 of Revelation. And the title of my message is A Celestial View of the Future. A Celestial View of the Future. And you know, I just want to say that all I really need to do today for you to be blessed, you know what it is? There's only one thing I need to do. Just read this chapter and I can sit down. Because in Revelation chapter 1, if you read in verse 2, it says, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in, in it, for the time is near. So I, I thought to myself, should I just read the chapter and sit down and that will be that? How would, you, how, how would that go over? I, I don't know if uh, Greg would be happy with me. <laughs> okay, we're good. We're good. Excellent, excellent. Manoj, any uh, disagreements? Uh, Vlad, we're, we're good? Okay. Let's read God's Word, chapter 4 of Revelation. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are the four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power Power, for you created all things, and by you, you, by your will, they existed and were created. Okay, I'm going to sit down now. That's a blessing, isn't it? Here's my summary of this chapter, and it's the summary with with which I use to to put together an outline that I hope will help us see what's clear about what God has to say to us. The future is never seen more clearly than when it is seen from heaven 
where God reigns with all authority and where he receives all worship. Did you get that? The future is never seen more clearly than when it is seen from heaven where God reigns with all authority and where he receives all worship. Let's pray together. We are blessed, Lord. We are blessed with your word. We are blessed that you want to make things clear to us, that we might know you and that we might have a relationship with you. We might grow in you and experience you not only today, but for all eternity. Blessed be your name, O God. Through Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, first point. The future is depicted most clearly from heaven. The future is depicted most clearly from heaven. Now here in Lyon and more generally in France, you will notice that most homes are well hidden. Usually there's a wall or there is a hedge. And how many of you have walked by a wall or a hedge here in Lyon or in the region and you said to yourself, boy, I wish I could see what's behind those walls and those hedges. Did you ever had that experience? Hard to get a glimpse of the grounds and the house, which is like the French like it. They, they don't like to show those things. The sacredness of privacy, privacy is a French specificité, a, a French specificity. It's just that specificity that makes me, personally, very curious every time I'm walking in the neighborhood and I see an open gate or an open door and I can actually look in and see the house and the grounds and usually my reaction is, whoa, wow. Now I know why they're hiding all that. It's really fun to do. Now notice with me, the door that is open in this text. It's a door that opens to something we can't normally see. And it's a heavenly view. Of course, John sees it. And because John saw it and wrote it down and God had him write it down, we see it. And God wants us to see it. He wants us to have this vision. It's a door that looks upon the true course of history and where it is going and where it will end. And if you understand Revelation in that perspective, you'll, you'll come out of it okay. It's a door that you'll never find here below. And here it is for us to see. Now notice that the voice that makes itself heard. Verse one, again, we're still in verse one. The voice that makes itself heard, it's a voice like what? Like the sound of a trumpet. Now how many of you have heard a trumpet? Everyone here has heard a trumpet, you know? And now what comes to mind when I read this verse are all the movies that I watched as a kid. The Ten Commandments, maybe you've watched that. Ben-Hur, just the other night with Karen for pizza video night on Friday night. You can come over sometime and enjoy it with us. <laughs> We, we watch Robin Hood, the old one from 1938. With those bigger than life scenes of a person, when a person is entering and, and or in a large hall and coming to a big event to the sound of trumpets. You, you know what I'm talking about. The trumpet is an instrument often used to precede a grand, a great announcement. It attracts your attention and it wakes you up. No wonder we use it for reveille or réveil in French. That's what reveille means. It's what you use when you want to wake everyone up, especially in the military. It's also what you use to call to battle or to call a retreat. 
At least it was in the past. Indeed, the announcement here concerns what must take place. And thus, we're talking about what? The future. What must take place? It's what hasn't happened yet, and it's going to. And perhaps you notice the allusion to what Jesus said to the Laodicean church. Did you, did you notice that allusion in the first verse? Because if you read the last verses of chapter 3, you'll, you'll see it. He spoke to them, that is Jesus, in the last verses of chapter 3, of a door where he was, what? Knocking. And here in chapter 4, what happens? There's a door that opens. Opens wide. And here is the door that opens to heaven itself. Now, knowing Jesus is knowing heaven itself. But that's another sermon. He asks them to listen to his voice. In chapter 3, last verses, he asks them to listen to his voice. And here in chapter 4, it's the same voice that John had heard in chapter 1. And it is as pronounced as a trumpet. That's, that's what you read if you read in, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. You see that voice speaking to John, and it sounds as if it's a trumpet. I mean, it's pronounced. You're not going to miss it. It's important. You better wake up. Here's the same voice that will guide him to perceive God's heavenly plan for the terrestrial realm, for what's happening in our world. And there's no coincidence between these two chapters. John hears Jesus' voice, end of chapter 3, and is ready to enter, and what happens? The doors open. That's the way God is. Fine, good, and interesting, you say. That's really cool. I'm really glad you pointed that out. But what do we do with what we notice? What do you do with it? How do you apply it? And the first thing to understand is this, is that our future individually, corporately, depends on how we respond to God's voice. It's as simple as that. Isn't that clear? Our future depends on how we respond to God's voice. That's a clear teaching of this, of this passage, I believe. Now, are you listening? Are we listening? Did you notice the other seven series of seven in the first three chapters? I mentioned it just slightly in the introduction. There's another group of seven. You know what it was? Every time that Jesus says it, he says it seven times in chapter two and chapter three. Everyone who has ears, he who has an ear, let him hear. He says that seven times. So this is just as important as the seven uh, lampstands, the seven uh, angels. This is important. The full blessing of God awaits all who have an ear that hears him. And the question is simply this, are you listening? Are we listening? Another thing to understand is that the future of the world, get this, and, and I really appreciate what we saw about this march that we're talking about, thank you. The future of the world doesn't depend upon the world. We should be involved in action in this world. There's no doubt about it because God calls us to that. But the end of history is determined not by what happens in this world. The end of history is determined by what happens in heaven. Did you know that? We should not fear the devolution or the de 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 degradation of the state of our world. Since the fall, the world as we know it is doomed to failure. Why? Because of sin. It's doomed to failure. And we're going to see 
that God will do justice on a world full of sin. We're going to see it. We see it already, but we're going to see it in a pronounced way, especially at the end. Are we at the end? Who knows? God knows. And he will determine what takes place in history. Do you remember um, Noah? The future was in God's hand during Noah's time. And um, what happened? God saw that the intentions of people's hearts were only evil all the time. And he regretted that he made the earth. He regretted it. And he decided that he was going to judge it. And yet in the same time, in that judgment, he remembers mercy. And Noah and his family is saved and a new era is born. And I believe if you see in verse 3, what do you see there? You see a rainbow. Now that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? When we think of Noah. And what was the rainbow about? It was about God's mercy never to destroy the earth in that way again. Mercy in the midst of judgment. The future of the world does not depend on the world, although many will make us believe that. World leaders think that is, that's really important, that the future of their country or, or their, of their uh, rule will determine the way things will be. <laughs> A lot of those people don't exist anymore, and all that they thought would be is not. The future of the world depends on God's plan for it. That plan is composed of two parts, and this is really important. I think we see them here. God plans to judge and destroy the world. You might say, well, where do you see that? You're going to see it in a second. God plans to redeem and renew the world. Next week, we're going to talk about that more in chapter 5. He did it once in Noah's day. He's going to do it again. It's going to be a different way, but it's going to happen. Now, we play an integral part in his work. You might say, well, how's that? Well, we need to speak because the book of Revelation is a book about judgment. Like I said, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But it's a book about judgment, God's judgment on sin and evil and God's redemption and bringing and making all things new out of what exists. And we play an integral part in that work. We need to speak of God's judgment because we know, we know closely we know intimately how important that judgment was for us. The judgment of God the Father upon Christ at the cross. That has made all the difference in our life. That's why we're here. And we need to speak of God's not only judgment in what happened at the cross, because that's where we are in history, and God is allowing that message to go out into all the world before all of, this thing, all of these things in Revelation take place. We also need to speak of God's redemption and renewal because he has made us new creatures through his saving work. And the question is, are we speaking? Are we talking about that? Speaking about such things may not be easy in this world because frankly, there are many people in the world who just don't want to hear it. But we have nothing to fear when we know who is really in control. So we're just starting to see the connection between this chapter and, the, and God's definitive plan for the whole creation. Chapters 4 and 5 establish the very basis of God's plan for both judgment and redemption, salvation. In the meantime, we're going to look at another vital part of this chapter. Second point, the future, of course we're talking about the future, depends on the most important actor seated on the throne. The future depends on its most important actor who is seated 
on the throne. This image is an image of God on his throne. And it's not a new image. Uh, you've seen it before. Perhaps if you've read through the scriptures, if you've read through the Old Testament, you've seen it before. Where have you seen it? Anyone want to try? The book of Ezekiel. You read the first chapter of Ezekiel, the eighth chapter of Ezekiel. There it is. Exactly what John sees is almost what, what Ezekiel saw. There's nothing new here. He's described in a similar, grandiose, fearful, and difficult to understand vision in his prophecy. That's Ezekiel's prophecy. We see the same elements in Ezekiel that we see in, in John's revelation. There's a throne. There's, there's a, a figure in that throne, and, and he's almost indescribable. There's someone seated on the throne, that same figure. There are unusual creatures uh, that are connected to the throne. And in, in, in Ezekiel's vision, there's wheels. And I have no idea what those wheels look like or are about. I mean, it's just baffling. Wheels within them, wheels moving in every direction. They're just trying, these guys are just trying to describe things that have never been seen before. God's trying to make it clear. The context of both visions, and this is really, really important. The context of both visions, whether it be Ezekiel or it be John in Revelation, is fearfully similar in what follows after the vision. Hold on to this. This is really important. The context of both visions are fearfully similar in what follows. In the vision in Ezekiel, it is tied to God's judgment on his disobedient people that leads to God's departure from both the temple and Jerusalem. That's it. God appears in this glory and within a few chapters, God is gone. He's no longer in the temple. He's no longer in Jerusalem. John's vision tied to, this, to, to God's judgment in just the same way. His judgment of the whole world before what? Before he comes again. He's coming back. And that's what Revelation is about. It's about the second coming and establishing what? The new Jerusalem that we will see literally coming down from heaven. Do you see the connection between God's appearance in his glory and his judgment? Do you see it? I hope you do. I think it's clear. The description in this passage reminds me of the arrival of a storm. Have you ever, you know, seen a storm coming? We, I've seen it a number of occasions in my life. Darkened skies, lightning, thunder, hail, fearful, and yet beautiful. At one at the same time, you're looking, you want to look, but you, you want to flee at the same time. Have you ever had that experience? You know, we were, this summer, we were in Pennsylvania, and there was a, a tornado landed about 15 minutes from our house. It was, the, the scars, sky was so dark, and it was so eerie, and, and the, my phone is beeping, like, with this, like, warning. If you're in a house, get into your basement. Did I go in the basement? No. What did I do? I went on the porch. All this glass. <laughs> Karen did the same thing. <laughs> Both fearful and beautiful. God appears, but it's not necessarily a good sign. God appeared, 
before the Egyptians at the Red Sea in glory. And it saved one half and it destroyed Egypt's army. His appearance in glory, (laughs) that's not a good sign. It is and it isn't. When God's glory is manifested, God's judgment is not far behind. That is both beautiful and terrible. The same John, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, says in this Gospel, when speaking of Christ, that we have seen his glory. Uh oh. And gleed the glory of his first coming, what would it lead to? What happened just a week before he goes to the cross? The transfiguration where Jesus appears in all of his glory. Peter doesn't know what to do with it. We'll we'll put some tents here, Lord. He doesn't know what he's saying. The most beautiful and terrible manifestation of God's judgment that the world up to this point has ever seen took place at the cross. It is beautiful because of God's love for sinners. It is fearful because of God's judgment of sin. The judgment to come will only be fearful to those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. There's no hope for those who haven't trusted the judgment that has fallen on Christ on their behalf. This image shows us the real center of power and authority. God, of course, you see it. We we sang it. He's at the center. He is seated. He's not pacing back and forth, wondering, oh no, what am I going to do? This world is just going wild. What am I going to do? It's going to destroy itself. He's not in a panic about a fallen world. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in perfect control because it's from this seat where he is seated that his plan was conceived. It's from this seat that his decrees go forth. It's from this seat that he directs his perfect plan. And you may say to yourself, well, all the evil in the world, all the slavery, all of this reality that we, what, what, what is God doing? He's in control. And God is recognized here, and this is so clear, and I think we should understand it. He's recognized for who he is by the creatures around him. Every creature knows his place before him. They know exactly where they should be. Every, even the most fearful beings that are hard to understand and grasp what they're all about, bow and adore God around who's seated on his throne at the center. And this image is really the very basis of of our confidence as believers. You know, a few years back, we were in the book of Acts. I don't know if you remember, we were in the Temple du Change, we were in the book of Acts, and I had uh, uh, two two messages, I think, back-to-back, and we talked about a few chapters with Paul and his travels, one of his missionary journeys, and I said, here's a method of studying the Bible, that you can use these questions that will help you understand the Bible. Do you remember that? Some of you remember that? Good, I'm glad to hear it. Great. That makes me feel so good. That's why I put it in here, so I could feel it. No, just kidding. But, uh, but what are the questions that we asked? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about people? If it's true, because it's true, what do I need to do about it? What needs to change? And who can I share this with? Do you remember those four questions? Great questions with which to approach the scripture and a text in particular. Here we see God's all-powerful reign 
and control over history. It, to, it, it says a lot about God, a lot of clear things about God. And, and here's, here's the question that I will ask myself because of it, and I have to ask myself over and over again. What in the world do I have to fear? What in the world do I have to fear if God is on his throne? Even death has been conquered. What do I have to fear? Can I not walk in confidence in everything that I do as I do it and seek to, 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 to honor him as I trust in him? Even though I walk, what, through the valley of the shadow of death? Yes, I can. Yes, you can. Because God is on the throne. I don't know about you, but that helps me. That helps me a lot. There's much more that we can look at in this chapter concerning God's appearance. I mean, the commentaries, they go everywhere. It's really cool. I'm, I'm not saying it's, but if you wanted to go into it, then are you ready to stay about another three, four more hours? There's much more that we can look at in this chapter concerning God's appearance, the case. I'd love to read Ezekiel's prophecy with you, just the first chapter and, and the eighth chapter, but it's best to stick with what is clear for now. And that's still not easy with this chapter, especially when it comes to the creatures that we're about to look at, that are described. Now, yet if we were to look at what they're doing, we'll, we'll land up okay. Why? Because this is the last point. We're almost there. The future displays the most essential action that exists. You know what that action is? Worship of God. The worship of God. The future displays the most essential action that exists, the worship of God. We could say a lot about the creatures that surround the throne. We can get our minds around at least the elders that look like people. They are people, it seems. They look like us. They are seated too. They have crowns. They have a, a role. They have authority. We can at least say that as we look at those, uh, those images. There are 24 of them. 24, it's one of the few places in scriptures where you have 24 altogether. It's usually 12. And, you know, I didn't look in a commentary before I made this outline. I thought, okay, 24, Revelation, what does it mean? Okay, there's 12 tribes. There's 12 apostles. Is, does this mean something about God's redemption? you know, leaders in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Is this related to God's church, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament? Is, is that what it's about? I didn't necessarily need to go to a commentary to just come to some of those conclusions. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not 100% sure. No one's 100% sure. But it's harder to get our minds around the living creatures. There are four of them, and each one is distinct. One resembles a lion. Okay, lion, super. We're in Lyon. That's great. One is an ox. One is a man or looks like a man. One an eagle. At least these are what their faces look like. They are bizarre. They have six wings each. What does that mean? They have eyes all over, covered, inside, outside, over, under, everywhere. I mean, I don't know what these things are. Why are they described in this way? Why? I don't know. I don't know. One commentator says this, based on an educated guess. Okay, you ready? The most natural explanation according to, for these living creatures to be given is to suppose, okay, doesn't sound too definitive to me, that they are symbolical beings designated to furnish some representation, some representation, not the representation, of the government of God, 
which rests on wit and power and intelligence and vigilance and energy. Pretty nice. Another commentator says, perhaps their faces represent God's, represent God's wisdom, his, his strength, his loftiness, and the eyes, his ceaseless watchfulness over every part of the creation. I could say amen to that. I could. But is it true? Is it, is it what the meaning is? We don't know. And that's okay. But what is clear, and that's what we need to know, is the following. God is not distant. He's not distant from his creatures, allowing them to participate in his work. We see that with the elders. The elders reign in some way. The living creatures set the stage for true worship. God allows all that. He's in, he's in relationship with what he's created. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't have to be. And what's the major action that is taking place. You want to know where it's all going? You want to know what the end of history will bring? <laughs> Every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne, worshiping the one true living God and the Lamb who is slain and yet who lives. And they're going to do that forever and ever and ever. You might say, well, that sounds kind of like, aren't we going to do anything else? Don't you worry. Don't you worry. The major action of all is worship. They bow down. That's what worship means, bowing down, prostrating yourself. They admire and gaze upon God. There are so many eyes, I believe, because that's what it takes to grasp at least in some way something of God's greatness and beauty. You need every one of those eyes and more to really grasp the one who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It takes a lot of eyes to see that. And they recognize him as well as creator. And they, and they sing about it. We sing about it too. Hymn, chapter, uh, verse 11, is a hymn. How does it read? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What do we learn from this? When God is at the center and his creatures focus, their focus is on him, everything falls into place. Imagine a world where every creature did this. They bowed before this God, the true God. The world would look like a different place, wouldn't it? I believe that. In fact, this is exactly what distinguishes the church from the world because this is what the church does individually and corporately. We bow He's the center. Everything we do revolves around him. The world needs to see that because that's where it's going. That's where it's going to land up. That's the vision. And we're getting ready for it. Didn't we experience it last week with our French brothers and sisters? Didn't we experience it? And you know, next week we're going to be in chapter five. The work of the lamb unites people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and language. And what are they doing? They're around the throne, worshiping the one true and living God. And what's gonna happen after all that? Well, the one who's on the throne, who can open the seals, and he's the only one that's worthy, he's gonna open those seals, and he's gonna bring to bear God's 
just judgment on the world so that once and for all, God can make all things new. That's next week, not this week, sorry. We also learn that God is in total control. That is very clear. He controls history, including what is to come. And knowing this gives us confidence in the present and future, no matter the difficulties which inevitably come in a fallen world. Vlad, thank you for sharing. We go through difficulties, but he's on the throne. That may seem like, well, that's not, that's not really an answer. I don't feel it. Believe it. We walk by faith, no matter the difficulties. And God is always there. And my brother back in the back, thank you. Giving thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you. Recognizing that God is in control even in the midst of all of the realities that are hard and cause us to struggle. We give thanks because we know he's in control and that he can work what? To the good, for the good, everything for the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. And so the best application I can give you to this text is this. God is in control and knows the future because it depends on him. And when we grasp that, we grasp who God is and true worship is gonna come out of that. There's no doubt about it. We see it here in the living creatures and the elders, and, and that's an example that we can follow. We are united with them in our awe and in our worship. In fact, we're all gonna be united one day around the throne in that awe and worship. And then I think, I really think, then God's gonna say, oh, you think that was something? You ain't seen nothing yet. And so I will close with a simple question. Have you understood this chapter of Revelation? Don't answer, I'll 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 feel really bad if you say no. Now, I could have made it more complicated and piled up on info about the tribulation. In fact, you know, the elders, it it had to be the church, and this is before the tribulation, and and this is before the rapture. You know, commentators are going in all of these directions, and it's all good, and you should look into it. It's really worth your while, but it's not for today. I want you to hear what's clear. The info is out there, worth the reading. For this message, I have chosen perspicuity and hopefully have helped you grasp what is most clear and important. Now if you walk away from this message today challenged to face the future confidently because God is in control, if you walk away today and go out to share freely about the judgment of God that has fallen on Christ for our salvation to your neighbor, if you go out today and you worship God with all your being because he is worthy, then I will be perfectly happy with what you got out of this message. Perfectly happy.